Revelation chapter 3, and we're reading from verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. As you know, I'm sure, um, this is a letter uh, that uh, was a book, rather, that was written uh, by John, the apostle, whilst he was in exile because of the gospel on the Isle of Patmos. And he has a a, a vision of the the ascended Christ who comes to him, reveals his majesty, and uh, starts to lay out for John uh, something of the the end times and the end of the story, and uh, you'll be, uh, you may be comforted that I'm not going to stray into that this afternoon. But he also has some specific messages to existing churches at the time, and in chapters 2 and 3, uh, you can read those. Some of them are pretty X-rated, to be honest with you. But here is a message to a church that Jesus was pleased with. And it tells us some important things I want to share with you. The first thing is this. It tells us the importance of how we see Jesus. John, the apostle at Patmos, had a revolution of the majesty of Christ. And it's important that we're clear how we see Jesus for ourselves. And before we get into the message, I want to just uh, pause and look briefly at the one who speaks. It says here, verse 7, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. Now, of course, last time the world had seen Jesus, uh, they called him a sinner and a deceiver of the people. And they saw him hung, seemingly helpless, powerless, dead on a cross. And yet here, and you could say then he was like sort of son of God, in weakness, seemingly unable to help himself, let alone anybody else. That was the world view of him. And yet we read uh, in Paul's uh, letter to Romans at the beginning of that letter, he said, now through the resurrection, he's revealed to us as son of God in power. And through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there is a fresh revelation of his majesty and power. And he goes on to say, who has the key of David? Now, what is that? What's it speaking of, the key of David? Well, it's reminding us of Jesus' messianic authority. It was prophesied hundreds of years before. Uh, Again and again, here's just one example uh, from the prophet Isaiah. He says this. You needn't turn to it. I'll read it to you. In Isaiah 9, uh, in uh, verses that we often hear at Christmas time, he says this. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. 
from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here he is, David's descendant, and he says, I hold the keys of David. All that messianic authority, because David was Israel's greatest king, and uh, he conquered many enemies with a blooded sword. But here we have an even greater king, the cosmic king, King Jesus, who conquered our greatest enemy, not through a blooded sword, but through a blooded cross, not just to establish a geographical kingdom in the Middle East, but in order to reach and bring peace to the whole world through every generation. And consequently, this risen one from the tombs, uh, fresh risen from the tombs, says this, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He holds the keys. Okay? Got that? It's important we establish that before we get into the main bulk of the message here. But just to say this, that as we've just heard through these baptism testimonies, the Christian life begins with an encounter with this one who holds the keys, this majestic one, this risen one. It begins with an encounter with him. I want to ask you a question. Perhaps you've come to a visit this afternoon. You've come to see someone baptized. I want to ask you a question. Have you met him? Have you encountered this majestic risen Christ? Perhaps you're asking questions and you think, well, I've got some questions about what it is Christians believe and what my life would look like if I were to become a Christian and uh, how, I were, how I would fit into a group of people like this. I've got, I've got many questions. I, I want to know more about creation and uh, how that fits with what I've been told about evolution and all these sort of things. Or perhaps I'm, I'm not too sure. Are you saying Jesus bodily rose from the dead and is still alive? I've got questions about that. Well, that's, that's very reasonable of you. And it's good to come with those questions. And it's good to seek answers and bring your brains. You need your brains as a Christian. You don't abandon your brains at the front door. Bring your brains with you. But do you know what the principal, most important reason is that you do not yet believe in Jesus if you don't believe in him? Do you know what that is? Do you know what the, the, the biggest issue facing you in order for you to become a believer in Jesus. Do you know what that is? I'll tell you what it is. It's this. You haven't met him yet. (laughs) When you meet him, you will believe in him. When you encounter him, all your questions will be put in perspective. I can remember when I, before I was a Christian, I met beautiful, very, very beautiful uh, young woman. Obviously, I, I must be talking about my wife, Penny, because uh, I'm not allowed to speak about anyone else in those terms. I met Penny. She had not long been a Christian. And uh, I was horrified when I found out sh- that she was a Christian. I thought, well, that means a whole bunch of things which I won't get into details about because the children are with us. And uh, it means that, uh, obviously, I knew that Christians were boring. And uh, that, that was my perspective then, by the way, if you're thinking that's what I believe now. I don't. Um, They were boring, and they're not a lot of fun. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And here is a vibrant, attractive young woman, and she seems to believe in Jesus. He's been dead for 2,000 years. You know, what's that got to do? And I was very, very antagonistic. 
And I really had problems with some of the things she believed because she believed that God created the universe uh, out of nothing. And uh, as a scientifically trained person of my kind of standing, I mean, I very nearly passed my O-level physics, <laughs> I had problems with such a worldview. And uh, I have to say this, that one night, to my shame, uh, I was arrested after a drunken fracas, a, a violent incident, and that was before I did Equip for Ministry with Arnold. So. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you what kicked it off. Um, a, a lecturer where I was studying gave me a particularly poor mark in an exam. <laughs> There's nothing that makes me so mad as that. <laughs> No, no, no. I'd been arrested after a drunken fracas, and I was, uh, I was in a cell in the police station, and um, I was so proud uh, that it took that kind of crisis to bring me to my senses. I hope you're not that proud. I hope you're not that hard of heart. Uh, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, you don't have to go through a crisis like that. You can meet him this afternoon. But it took that for me. And uh, I cried out to Jesus, uh, alone, locked into a cell, very drunk, with no one else to turn to. I, I called out to Jesus, if you're there, please help me. And in that moment, he flooded my life. And the doors are still locked, but he opened my heart. And I, I met him. <laughs> drunk alone in a police cell. Uh, there wasn't any stained glass or anything like that. And just there, he came into my heart. And you know he can do that for you this afternoon. If you don't, he can come to you right now. If you just call to him. Uh, not a very religious prayer, was it? If you're there. <laughs> I wasn't even sure about that. If you're there, help me. Boom. That's all it takes. He knows your heart. And uh, suddenly, all my questions were put into perspective. Because when I met him, when I met the one who could open my heart in a moment, the idea that he could put the stars in orbit with a word suddenly seemed very, very plausible to me. And everything else started getting sorted out once I had encountered the risen one. But actually, the Christian life also continues with encounters with him. And I guess most of us here probably are Christians, it's not just about when we first met him. It's about how we continue with him. It's interesting, as we've already noted, this is written by the Apostle John. He's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a wonderful picture in John's Gospel, uh, in John 13, in fact, at what we often know as the Last Supper, of the kind of intimacy that John the Apostle enjoyed with Jesus. He was one of the inner group, and perhaps the uh, kind of closest to Jesus. And at the Last Supper, there's a, you know, we're told in the story that he leaned against Jesus' breast, and he conversed with him, asked him questions about things that were going on. It's a picture of intimacy and tenderness. And yet, if we were to look just in chapter 1 of Revelation... In verse 17, it just tells us what happened when John encountered the risen Christ. It says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet 
as though dead. Now, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is we live with those two things together in some kind of tension, that we come to Jesus because of all he's done on the cross. We come with absolute confidence. We can be familiar, if you like, with God because he's brought us into his family. We can come with absolute confidence. We are sons and daughters. We have no fear uh, of God. Uh, We come into him. He's our Abba, Father. We're like his little children. And yet we must never let that stray into over-familiarity. It strikes me interesting that the one who was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved and leant against his breast, yet when he encountered the risen Christ, is on his face before him. It never became, if you like, over-familiar. And it's great in our kind of churches where we we dress how we like and we're very informal and that reflects our doctrine that we are children before God. And yet, we must be careful, dear friends, that we don't ever become casual in our love for him and casual in our respect for him. Reminds me of this story from the Narnia Chronicles where the Pevensey children... Uh, say to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. They're intrigued about Aslan. They've heard that Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion. And they say, but is he safe? And he says, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I just want to ask you, if you know Jesus, you've known him perhaps for many years, you've been in church, perhaps in this church for many years, I want to ask you, are you full of zeal for him? Do you still sometimes tremble in his presence? Have you had encounters recently that have caused you to (laughs) fall on your face or, or at least to your knees? Or have you become a little casual? Because we must be careful when we become casual. We kind of know how things are done. We've been around a while. I think it's people of my age and older who are particularly in danger of this. We kind of know how things are done. And we kind of know how God does things, don't we? And we, if we're not careful, we kind of start putting him in a box of our own experience. Actually, God won't be held in a box. He's a risen one. Even the tomb couldn't hold him. And if we are not careful, we can miss out on the breakthroughs and the mighty things that God wants to do in our lives. He'll still do them with us or without us, but he'd rather have us on board. And so I want to ask you, do you need a fresh encounter with the risen Christ even today? So it's important how we see Jesus. Secondly, and kind of a little more briefly, I think, how Jesus sees us. He says this in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, uh, no, I'll miss that bit out. That's a good bit. We'll leave that to last. I know your works. Um, I know that you have but little power. You see, Jesus sees us. And at first you might be a little offended at that. You say, what do you mean we've got just little power? You know, we've, if I'm speaking to this church, you've got this whacking great big building. You've got history behind you. You've done some things. You've got the best pastor and eldership team in the country. So I heard. That's in the email that Arnold sent me uh, when he invited me. <laughs> You've got great leadership, you've got resources, you've got, you've, you've got a lot of history, you've seen miracles, you've, 
What do you mean you've just got a little power? But actually, by comparison with the task and the challenge ahead of you, reaching this city of over half a million people, maybe reaching into other key towns and sending people to other cities, the nations are represented by the flags along the balconies here, the, the sheer size of the commission that is upon you as a church, that rather puts things in perspective. It is a realistic assessment. You do have but little power. Would you agree with me? You're not yet ready to go and take the city for Jesus and uh, such talk. And sometimes when we're gathered on a Sunday gathering and there's hundreds of us, we're enjoying the presence of God as we have been this afternoon and you're hearing these wonderful testimonies of changed life. You think, wow, we've really got it together. Now we're going somewhere. And then Monday morning in the office, and when people say, oh yeah, what you've been up to over the weekend? And suddenly you don't quite feel so triumphalistic, do you? You don't quite feel like that lion when you were singing out in tongues in the worship time. We're going to take Sheffield for Jesus. And then Monday morning, you're more like a, a little mouse. You have but little power, Jesus says. And so, consequently, we must be utterly and ever renewing our reliance upon him. We cannot afford to be complacent. There's a complacent church later on in the chapter, actually, of the church in Laodicea. And Jesus is pretty tough with them. He says, for you say, this is verse 17, he says, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So actually, when Jesus says to a church, I know you've got but little power, it's actually quite a good thing. He's not terribly impressed by those churches that feel that they've got it all together. Let me say this to you, and I don't know, you might take this as good news or bad news. Take it any way you like, I don't care, I'm getting in the car afterwards and going. I've been invited to speak at many places once, <laughs> so you'll never see my face again. If you are going to be, and I know you are, I know you already are, not just going to be, you are a dynamic and obedient church, aren't you? Six of you are, Christ <laughs> God. Would you like the names of those six, Arnold? Who wants to be? Come on, let's wake you up a little bit. It's the afternoon, you've had your lunch, you're all starting to go. Who wants to be a dynamic, obedient church? Yes? yes. Pardon? Let's, let's have a little bit of fun. Children, you can join in. Who wants to be part of a large, city-impacting, nation-reaching, dynamic, obedient church? Yes. yes! Praise God. Well, listen. Let me warn you about something. You are always then going to be at a stretch. And you're always going to feel that you can't cope. And you're always going to feel that there's a gap between what you're going for and where you are and haven't the elders noticed and hasn't this been done and how come we're going for that and this is going wrong and it's always going to be like that. Now, I'll repeat the question earlier. <laughs> Who of... You see, that's the deal. That's the journey. That is the roadmap. 
continually feeling stretched, under-resourced, often overworked, (laughs) and continually feeling we've never been this way before and we're not quite sure what we're doing. And uh, you think the elders know exactly what they're doing, don't you? I mean, look at them. They're wonderful men, aren't they? I know them well, Mark and Dan and Arnold and their lovely wives. They've got it all together. They know what they're doing. Let me let you into a little secret. They're probably on their faces before God week by week saying, God, help us through this next week. That's, I'm, sure, I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's the case, and that's how it should be. The more we go for God, the more stretched we will become, and uh, we will be, recognize that we, we only have a little power. Now, the wonderful thing is this. Jesus is saying, really, you do have a little power. You could put it like this. You do have a little bit of the real thing. And here's even better news you know where you got it from. You've got the power of God in you here as a church. And you might long for more, but that's no reason to give up or become complacent. It's a reason to ask God for more. Often, if you read in the Gospels, it says things like this, that uh, Jesus made as if to pass the disciples by. You think of on the lake of the Sea of Galilee, the uh, disciples are rowing hard into the oncoming wind and uh, it says that Jesus came walking across the water like like you would expect him to it's what Penny and I do on the Trent River sometimes on a Sunday afternoon we'd have, should we go for a walk on the Trent shall we darling she said alright oh, toe pass a bit muddy so we just you know just step out and don't you do that here okay Jesus comes walking across the uh, Sea of Galilee and it says this it says he made as if to go past them and the disciples are going, ah, help, help, come and help us. There's another occasion where, uh, the end of Luke's gospel, where Jesus encounters the two on the road to Emmaus. You know the story well. And he talks with them, and they don't realize who he is. And then they get to Emmaus, and it says, and they're going to stop there. But it says, he made as if to carry on. And they say, no, 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 come and stop with us. And they stop and they have a meal. And as they're breaking bread together, suddenly, ah, it's Jesus. And then as soon as they realize, boom, he's gone. Amazing. I'd love to be there. Eh? I think of blind Bartimaeus. He's just begging by the roadside on the road out of Jericho. And all of a sudden he hears, Jesus is coming. Jesus of Nazareth. And so he starts calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's, to be honest, if it's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. People saying, shut up, shut up, Bartimaeus. You know, let's give the guy a break. Shut up. It's all there in the original Greek. Shut up, give him a break. And uh, it, that just spurs him on all the more. He cries out, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There was some, a famous preacher once said it was a shout that stopped God. And Jesus stopped and said, call him to me. And then he says to him, what do you want? What can I do for you? You see, I think when Jesus says, "Um, yeah, you have but little power. You you have a little power. What's he actually saying? He's saying, would you like some more? Would you like some more? 
He made as if to pass by. You have a little power, but you can have more if you come to him, if you cry to him with all your heart. Do you need more signs and wonders, more healing, more outbreaks? You're ripe for it. It's a wonderful sense of the presence of God in your meeting here and the supernatural, the tongues and interpretation and the prophetic words. It's a wonderful, ripe environment for the outbreak of the power of God. But don't you want more of the power of God? Seven, that's up on last time. Seven of you want the power of God. Six of you want to be in a dynamic, obedient church. Seven of you want the power of God. And uh, I, don't know what, I don't know who the seventh one is who thinks they can have that without being in the first one. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> Here's the encouragement. I believe Jesus is inviting us to cry to him for more. I believe he's inviting you, even this afternoon. Some of you are facing situations that are impossible and are not manageable without the power of God. This afternoon, God wants to encounter you. And then lastly, we saw how, how we see Jesus is important. Secondly, how Jesus sees us. And thirdly, this passage teaches us something about how we see the opportunities and challenges ahead of us. It says in verse 8, Behold, I set before you an open door. Now, the New Testament church understood that God holds the keys, and they were consequently sensitive to the leading of the Spirit as to which way they should go and what they should do next. It can be helpful to learn from the business world with five-year plans and forward planning and budgeting and, and these things. We can learn lessons from these things and we can incorporate some, but we must never, ever lose the perspective that he holds the keys. And unless he opens a door, it ain't opening. But when he opens a the door, there ain't a man on the earth who can shut it. We see that in the disciples and the apostles early journeys act 16 fascinating passage paul and his team they say let's go up to asia and it says the spirit of jesus wouldn't let them i mean what does that mean what, what, what does it mean the spirit of jesus wouldn't let them and so they say okay then we'll go across to bithynia like you would and it says the spirit of jesus wouldn't let them go there either so then paul one night has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And it says, we concluded that God wanted us to go there. So they got up and they got on a ship and they land in, uh, in, in Macedonia, in modern Greece. And they arrive at, a, at the central town, Philippi. And they find a group of women just down by the river at the place of prayer. And they go and they begin to share the good news of Jesus with them. And as they do, it says this beautiful verse. Acts 16, verse 14, it says this. And the Lord, because she spoke to a lady called Lydia, and it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord opened her heart, just like he did for me. Drunk in that police cell, he opened her heart. And let me just, and then of course what happens was, she then opens her home to the apostles, and the beginnings of a church in Philippi is born right there. Let me just point out to you that the key that unlocks even a city 
often turns in an individual's heart. One conversation with one woman is the beginnings of a church that impacted a city. And just to say, these two ladies that have been baptized, especially you, young lady over there, smiling at me, that have been baptized, the key that's turned in your heart, who knows the ramifications for all the other people that will come to hear the gospel through this one lady. And the same for, is it Zoe, the, the second lady? Who knows? Through one lady, a great work of God began. You may feel that if we're ever to really make an impact in this city, it's going to come through the elders and the, the big church projects and the, the big campaigns and maybe churches working together and doing all sorts of things. All those things are part of it, but I tell you what, it comes down to you in your office, in school, amongst your friends, on campus, your individual conversation. Who knows that even this week, as you speak in one private conversation, that God won't come and use the key and open someone's heart. Isn't that a thrilling and encouraging prospect? So, God holds the keys, he unlocks the doors, and when he does so, it's easy. And I've finished, all right? Thank you, Jesus. We've had a lovely afternoon. No, I'm playing with you. I haven't quite finished. Actually, on another occasion, Paul said this. He's writing 1 Corinthians 16. He says this. I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. I like that bit. Do you like that bit? A wide door for effective work has opened for me. Can we have some more of that, please, Jesus? And there are many adversaries. Now, that seems odd to me. It seems odd, first of all, that he says and instead of but. I think I would have said, well, there's a wide door has opened up, but there's many adversaries, so I'm getting out of there. There's a wide door opened up, but there, are, but there are many adversaries. It's tough. But he doesn't say that at all. He says, wide door, oh, and many adversaries. So I'm hanging around. And I'm really going to put my energies into this. You see, the fact that it's an open door, and this is perhaps the most important thing I want to say to you this afternoon, so just bear with me. The fact that it's an open door does not mean that there are not going to be difficulties and challenges. There are going to be many of them, perhaps. You see, if we go back to Philippi, the next thing that we read is that Paul and Silas are thrown in jail and locked up it's still an open door. It doesn't feel much like one to them at the time. And it's often at this point where we think, this is an open door, and then we hit difficulty. It's at this point that we become, if we're honest, cynical, discouraged, start to have a little chanter and a murmur. And perhaps we start to lose a bit of that zeal we were talking about earlier. I know that's true. Because that's how I've often been. And he's like, oh, I thought you opened the door. Boom. And it's really tough. Hey, sometimes it is. But that doesn't mean that the door isn't open. You see, the advance of the kingdom is not just about increased size, dimensions, more pins in the map. 
it's also perhaps primarily about growth in our character and Christ-likeness. And it's often under times of pressure. In fact, usually, isn't it? In times of pressure, when we actually feel locked in, that God does the greatest work in our character and in our hearts as he conforms us to the likeness of Christ. I want to urge you. I, I, don't, I don't know you. I don't know all the faces I'm seeing. And you all look very lovely, by the way. I know you want to hear that. You look super. I know, but actually, that's flattery, isn't it? I'm not supposed to use that. Actually, you look okay, all of you. I urge you, no matter what pressure you as individuals or in your group or in your ministry or in your congregation, I urge you, don't throw away your confidence and courage just because the going may have got tough recently. It doesn't mean God isn't with you. It doesn't mean he hasn't opened the door for you. It may actually just be a sign that this is an open door. Like you, we've recently taken a venture with, um, not only with our building, but before we uh, bought the building, and I make it sound so easy, don't I? Oh, we bought a building. It was, it was terrifying roller coaster ride that we are still pinching ourselves to see if it's true. Every time I walk around our building, I think, I can't believe we got this place. And we attribute it totally and utterly to the fact that he holds the keys. That's the only explanation. I know you would say the same about your building here. But before we actually went for the building, we had decided to launch an evening meeting. We thought, University City, uh, the demographics of city and what have you. We were getting a bit full in our morning meeting. We thought, let's launch an evening meeting. And uh, I don't know how it compares with your uh, uh, north congregation, but uh, who's here from the north congregation? Yes! You're not very noisy, you lot, are you? <laughs> yes! Yeah. Uh, taking the north of Sheffield for Jesus, quietly and with dignity. <laughs> <laughs> we decided we were going to launch this evening meeting, and so we got a bunch of young radicals together. We said, come on, let's go for it. And uh, let's launch an evening meeting. It won't take many of us, and we'll just we'll go, and we, we haven't got much of a band, and we'll just sing in tongues a lot, and we'll, we'll have a, a laugh and some fun, and we'll worship Jesus, and we'll preach the same message as the morning, and, and, and people will come, and we'll invite our friends. And, and we made, made it sound really interesting and really exciting. And uh, to be honest with you, it was for about three or four weeks, and then it got quite hard work, and then we had uh, two evenings, memorable evenings, where only 14 people turned up, we actually didn't have a meeting. We just went down the pub together. And we're pioneering through this open door of, you know, uh, uh, pioneering a new meeting. And I want to say to you that it's probably got off the ground. We've seen our first person saved in an evening meeting, which is a real landmark for us. We've seen plenty of visitors. We've seen people coming in, people who don't know Jesus. It's beginning to get momentum. And it's blinking hard work. Can I say blinking here? Is that all right? It's blinking hard work. How many people know that it's hard work pioneering? And what's happening is even some of our most committed, radical, young radical people are coming to me and saying, I miss the morning meeting. (laughs) 
when they were in the morning meeting, they said, let's go and start an evening meeting. And uh, it's all full of families here. Let's go and start a radical evening meeting. It'll be all students and 20s and the poor and the homeless. And it's going to be radical, man. I, I don't ever speak like that. That was them. <laughs> and, uh, and so they said, okay, let's go. And then, you know, within a few weeks, they're coming back and saying, actually, we miss all the families and the little children and all the people we've grown up with over the last seven years. We miss them and we, we don't see them anymore. And oh, what's happening in the morning meeting? And within a few weeks, because I believe God has given us an open door in Nottingham. And there are many adversaries. And it's tough. And sometimes the visitors that turn up, you wish they haven't bothered, quite frankly, the trouble that they bring. And uh, you think, is this really an open door that we want to go through? I, I encourage you, in that moment, I don't know how you're doing in your North Congregation. North Congregation. If I say North Congregation, you should be going, yes! I'll, do, I'll give you another <laughs> I'll give you another opportunity, right? North Congregation, this is your moment, right? I don't know how it's going in the North Congregation. That sounds impressive. I want to join, okay? But let me guarantee you, if it hasn't happened already, there are times it's going to be tough. There's times you're going to wonder what you're doing, why you're doing it. Why don't you just pack it all in as another good idea. After all, there's plenty of space in this building. Why bother? There's going to be times when the pressure is going to come on you. I urge you, don't throw away your courage. Don't throw away your confidence. Remember, he holds the keys. It's through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. I don't believe that's speaking about how we get into the kingdom of God. It's, it's speaking about how we continue to enter and advance the kingdom of God. It is a tough deal and we shouldn't be put off. There is a clash of kingdoms and it's often in the fight that we really mature. And Paul and Silas were there, locked in. You might have, they might have thought, thanks a lot, God. Open door, eh? And here we are, locked in stocks in a dungeon. But they didn't throw away their confidence in God, and they kept praising. And they were praising him in the middle of the night, it says. Crying out to him, worshipping him, didn't care what the other prisoners thought, and God started hearing it and banging his feet in time. You know, God doesn't have feet, but you know what I mean. And it sent an earthquake. And it says, and all the doors sprung open. As you maintain your attitude of confidence in him, trust in him, through the pressure times, he will still remain the one who holds the keys. I want to say to you as I draw this to a close that we must remember that the keys are held in hands that still bear the marks of the cross. And there will be pressure and suffering and tribulations and difficulty for us. I know you don't want to hear that on a Sunday afternoon, but it's in the Bible, so I've got to tell you. There will be pressure and difficulty. And yet those wounds in those hands remind us that our names, your name, 
is eternally engraved in the palms of the hand that hold the keys. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Behold is not a word we use very often, is it? Arnold didn't say, Behold! Welcome area at the back there. Visit afterwards. Behold, Nick. It's not kind of the language we use. What does that mean? Well, it's something like this. Check it out. Don't miss it. And this is what this is saying. Behold, don't miss it. I believe with all my heart, from my little knowledge of you, my greater knowledge of Arnold and the team here and your history, I believe with all my heart, God has set before you in Sheffield an open door. Check it out. Don't miss it. Even when the pressure is on. And if it isn't on right now, there'll be a time coming when it is. Don't throw away your courage, your confidence. He's given you a wide open door. I want to ask you as, you, as we finish, how, how's your eyesight today? How are you seeing? First of all, how do you see him? Have you seen him? Have you met him? Or even as you're here this afternoon, have you realized that actually you've become a little over-familiar? You've become a little casual. You, don't, you tend to think of Jesus as someone you can, you can lean against his breast, but you've forgotten that he's the risen one, the cosmic king, the one who's not safe, but he's good. How do you see him? How does Jesus see us? He sees us with little power. And that's an invitation to go for him for more. And how do we see the opportunities and challenges ahead? Behold, I set before you an open door, even when there are many adversaries. God is the one who holds the keys. Let me pray, and then we can perhaps respond.